Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Casperson. Hey friends, March's podcast sponsor is the amazing company Taboo, T-A-B-U. Head over to heytaboo.com for their sexual wellness kit, which includes a massager and an organic lubricant to prioritize your sexual wellness. I love that the massager has an optional warming setting, being a former always frozen Minnesotan, and I love that their lubricant isn't sticky or tacky. Their team of clinicians and therapists really thought of women's comfort and what makes our bodies relax into pleasure. Use the code Y-A-N-B, yes, you are not broken, Y-A-N-B for 15% off of your kit. Hey friends, I'm so excited today to have Dr. Amy Perlman with me. She is a urologist and I always love having urologists on the podcast because they're kindred spirits. They went through what I went through and they care about the taking care of the conditions that I care about. So it's always fun. And it's it's like I've always known Amy here because we're already just chatting like we need to hang out at the next conference together. But you're a urologist specializing in men's health and genital urinary reconstruction and you work in Iowa City. Yeah, raise the roof. Awesome. <laughs> Have you ever been to Iowa City is the real question. Well, so I'm Minnesotan and the hot guys were always Canadians and Iowans. Iowans? <laughs> well, if you know anyone, still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the Minnesota boys were like, whatever. And then you're like, but he's from Iowa. And you're like, yeah. I don't know. It's, they always say like the corn fed dudes or they're, they're strapping. <laughs> I don't know. But I don't think I've actually been to Iowa City. Mm, mm. I'm assuming it's in this very center of Iowa. Uh, it's in East Iowa. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very center Iowa. Like, why wouldn't you put you Iowa City right in the middle? Assumptions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Clearly, I'm going to have to come and visit. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And we want to talk about men's health, women's health, how we are mostly alike and very, very similar, and uh, how we can help each other live our best sex lives. So thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Let's talk. One thing we were thinking about talking about was discussing a woman's role in men's health uh, as a healthcare provider, as a family member, and as a partner. Tell me kind of what you see out there in and how we support men. And why did you choose to do what you do, which is kind of the niche of taking care of men? As a woman in men's health, I discovered that passion about maybe three and a half years ago during my fellowship. And, you know, when we do our urology training as surgeons, we see a lot of different urologic concerns. And actually a minority of that ends up being men's health and sexual health. And even though erectile, some things like erectile dysfunction and sexual dysfunction seem to be very well within the bread and butter of urology, as a surgical resident, there's never, I've never remembered thinking to myself, I can't wait to be in clinic to talk about ED or sexual health. And yet that's, you know, both of our current practices is really focused on this. But as surgical trainees, we want to operate, we want to be in the operating room. And so really understanding how to talk with patients is something that I learned during fellowship after five years of surgery training. And it's something, it's my biggest learning curve now that I'm trying to perfect. Sure, my, my surgical skills, I'm trying to get better you know, every time I operate, but also my communicating skills are actually the biggest thing that I, I think will actually make a difference. 
So I decided to go into men's health, sexual health, because I like talking about sex and I get paid to do it. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> Everybody who gets paid to talk about sex says they're like, I'm so lucky I get paid to talk about sex. I think it's universal. Nobody's like, oh, this crap job I fell into. I don't know how I got here. Like everybody's grateful for it because it's so joyous and you help people so drastically. Yeah. And I think the question is, why wouldn't you want to do what we do? In terms of the stuff we get to talk about, you know, when, when patients, men, women, any gender show up in our clinics, they want to be there. That was a choice. You know, they may have waited one, two, three months to see us and they show up to their visit and they're like, I'm ready to talk, you know? And I think that's a luxury that we have. and, And we feel grateful for that because in a lot of other clinics, people are not forced to be there, but they don't really want to be there. And so we get the opportunity to to talk with patients who are like, I'm here, you know, what do I need to do? And their partners are are also usually, you know, welcome to that visit. So it's fun talking about this. We get paid to do it. So I think more people would be interested if they actually knew what it was about. It's just so many people in training never see these discussions. So they have no idea what that might bring for their career. Yeah. You're ahead of the curve. If you've already figured out like constant study of how to communicate with people is like... I'm like still figuring that out. I feel like I just started paying attention to it like 18 months ago or something. I'm still not awesome at it. Like, cause it's a constant study of like, everybody's different and what they come in with, especially for sexual health, isn't always their most like underlying concern. They come in with like X and then they really just want to know like, am I normal or am I lovable or am I broken? Like there's always something underneath, which like, if you can find that, then you really know how to help somebody. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is because when patients call in to schedule an appointment, they got to tell the scheduler something. Hey, ma'am, what can I help you with today? What are you looking to get some help with? And what are they going to say? I have pain with intercourse. My relationship is falling apart. My partner can't get, you know, good erections. So they have to come in with some sort of like pretty little bow of a chief complaint that for a lot of men who call in, it's erectile dysfunction. But when you really ask the person, I started asking this question, what are you hoping to get out of today's visit? What would make today successful for you? And then you start getting down this path of 45 minutes of, yes, I have ED, but I also have five other things that is really the reason that prompted that, you know, that visit. Yeah. And when we think about a woman's role in men's health and all these different roles that we might play in the men's health realm, at the end of the day, I think it's just getting back to like, what do you want my role to be? And what do I want my role to be as a woman, as a person? This was like two years ago, we met in a living room. It was community members in Iowa City. It was like five of us. And it was one of my male patients. And he helped me get these women that I didn't know. We just met in someone's living room on the couches together. And I proposed the question, what is a woman's role in men's health? So there were mothers there, there were spouses there. Yeah. And just women in the room. Right. And and I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. um, So I was providing sort of my own perspective there really mostly as a listener. And so one woman said, I take care of my own health and I don't really care to hear about my husband's prostate. I just want him to take care of it. Like I do for myself. And someone else said, as a mother, she said, I'm so grateful that my son is married because I'm just happy that his wife can talk to him about his health. And then another woman said, I am so grateful that my husband talks to his our son about his health. And then I asked, is that an assumption or do you know for a fact that your husband has talked to your son? And she said, that's an assumption. So it was mind blowing to me to hear 
that for all of these women, actually none of them really felt that they had a role in the health of the loved ones in their lives who identify as being men. And what we also see in our offices are women who take incredible responsibility over the health of their loved ones, especially the spouses. But when you look at that woman, and this happened recently, and and she seemed very stressed out, all the decisions were being made by her in the clinic. And, And even though I'm directing these questions to the man, he's looking to his partner to answer those questions. And so I asked her, I'm like, how are you doing? You know, you have, wow, to say that you have a lot on your plate is an understatement. And she's like, I'm exhausted. You know, I have to take care of everything for him. We have a farm. I'm taking care of like everybody else. She's like, I just want a massage. And so for her, even though she has this huge responsibility for his health, she needs a break. So, Mm -hmm. so much of the education and direct-to-consumer marketing, we're really targeting women to say, hey, get your loved ones in the office, encourage your husbands and your sons and your brothers to seek help. We got to go to the men and say, hey, bro, you got to take care of your health. And it's okay if you have help. It's okay. It's awesome if you have a support system. But at some point, when we ask a question about your health, I think you got to stop saying, I got to ask my wife, because then I'll always say, but what do you want? What's important to you? And you got to figure that out. Yes. Oh, I love it. This is such an important conversation to pe- for people to have because it's like, if you put the responsibility on somebody, and again, like you said, it's nuanced. We should all have some help and it's great if we have it. But if you put that responsibility on somebody else, kind of that ownership of like, I need to do this for me, that agency is missing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with what you do and you see, you know, a lot of women, or do you feel like you're ever directing those questions to the male partner when it comes to the woman's health? Or do you feel like the women are like, no, this is what I want. And this is right for me without going to someone else to ask. I think for the most part, the woman knows like yeah. she has, yeah. she, she might not always know what she wants, but like, it's not somebody else's burden to bear is the wrong word for it. But what I do see, you know, in the whole like sexual desire realm is a woman will come in wanting me to give her desire, right? So like actually putting it on the healthcare provider to provide the desire for them. And I think a big part of my work and hopefully the podcast is like desire is an inside job. You have to do that own work. A doctor can't give you desire. So I see that as like the burden's almost on like the healthcare provider or, or in the like the doctor didn't do anything for me. Is like the doctor literally can't make you understand your body and how to how it works and how to have sex, right? Mm. We can provide you the resources like podcasts and books, but yeah, that would say like women women take responsibility for their own, but then they for at least for the desire thing that pops up is like they went to a doctor for low desire and they didn't quote unquote get it because I'll always be like I I literally can't give you sexual desire. I know how it works, but I can't give it to you. If that ties into the the men's thing at all, yeah, absolutely. One thing I saw, this is kind of like me being a, a naive med student. So when I was in medical school, a guy came in, I think it was, I don't even know if it was a urology rotation. And he said, my female partner is going to leave me if I can't get my penis to work. So he was in for erectile dysfunction. And here I am, this like naive med student. And I'm like, she won't leave you. Women are, you know, we're greater than that. We love you for who you, like whatever I was thinking as a med student. And now that I've been a urologist and have been doing this for so long and heard the stories over and over, I'm like, oh, the woman will leave you. Like, 
She will totally, yep, she will. Yes, she will. We better get that penis working. So it's just like the evolution of like, you hear the story enough to be like, whoa, there's a lot of women who are going to leave the man because they're not talking about sexuality and what this means and helping him, like all the complexities that go into it. But I guess my point is like how naive I was that people leave each other over sexual health issues. Yeah, and and they leave each other over so many issues. And perhaps sexual health is just that one thing that used to bring them together. And so when they don't have that, if they don't have the other structural, you know, pieces in place and everything sort of falls. But like we think of the penis as being an overall barometer of health, if the penis doesn't working, then maybe someone has bad high, you know, blood pressure or diabetes. You know, sexual health is also a good barometer of the overall health of a relationship. And, you know, I can speak for my own relationships with prior partners and for ones that I see in the office is it absolutely is important. And it's, it really is a marker of other things that that person may or may not be doing to meet my needs or their partner's needs. And we don't really talk about how any of those needs are being met and, and certainly not the sexual needs. Yeah, there's a Barry McCarthy has written a lot of books, but Reclaiming Desires one, and his research is the one that says like a good sexual relationship adds about 15 to 20 percentage points to the overall wellness of a relationship. But a bad sexual relationship, a lack of a sexual relationship can be devastating for the relationship. So it's like, if it's great, yeah, wonderful. It's great. You probably you have a good relationship anyways, but if it's bad, it's an elephant in the room. Well, but, and it also gives you a sense of like, how much insight does this person have about my happiness and enjoyment? And obviously a man is not going to orgasm every single time he has sexual health. And we put a lot of pressure on the man to perform every time and to be able to reach orgasm climax every single time, which is certainly not the case. But, you know, in certain scenarios, if the man is doing that every time and the female partner is not is not most of the time, you know, how do you even bring that up in conversation, right? So we know it needs to be brought up. That's what we learn in training. It's what we tell other people. It's what we tell our friends, just bring it up, communicate it. Okay. So let's say we do try to communicate that information. You know, one thing that isn't taught is like, what words do we use? How do we do it in a way that like incentivizes that person to maybe care or encourages them and doesn't shame them or make them feel bad in that situation? So, okay. So let's say you bring it up And the response is, well, no one has seemed to have a problem with it before. And so like the woman says, well, how would you feel if I orgasmed every single time that we were together and you came one in 10, you know, and guys, they just, because no one has ever told them that information before, they just accept it. And some guys just like, they don't care. So I think that's where we think about is sex good. There are some people that care about satisfying their partner. And there are others that literally could not care less. And that you cannot hide in a sexual encounter. And so that just shows up in other aspects of one's relationship. But it's something that is so obvious when it comes to the bedroom. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, there's so much that's unsaid and so much that's assumed. This is why, again, I love this part of urology is because I'm like, I was a neuroscience undergrad. This involves relationships, communication, sociology, gender norms, socialization, what Hollywood tell, like, it's such a complex topic that I'm like, ah, it's, it's, again, I find it challenging. I don't know what you think in your practice. I find it challenging. You know, I'm in traditional private practice urology of like, I can't deal with this in 15 minutes. 
I literally can. That's why I'm like, I have to tell you the books to read and my podcast to go to because like I can give you estrogen cream and Viagra and very brief, but like all of this complexity, I can't do it in the office. It's not the right place for it for me. How do you navigate like the complexities within like standard doctor patient time slots? That's the beauty of where medicine is going and the opportunity of social media platforms and podcasting. I recently came to that epiphany that I don't have to tell my patient sitting in front of me every single thing they ever needed and need to know about their penis and the treatments and the side effects all in a single visit. I realized that my job for an in-person or telemedicine visit is to provide them the high level information, the links, like you said, these are the good podcasts. These are the good books. These are my online videos. This is a webinar I do the first Tuesday of every month. And I say, the learning is done at home, at the comfort of your home. You can have time to digest the information. And then when they come back the next visit, I can say, what questions do you have? And I no longer have to start the conversation with, there are four FDA approved medications for the treatment of erectile dysfunction, Viagra, Levitra, Sandra, you know, Cialis. And they can tell me, I have a question about Cialis. What do you think about me mixing Cialis and Viagra? And they understand why they're asking that question. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to change our mindset as healthcare providers now to say, we need to educate people in the comfort of their homes, get creative, use social media platforms. And what do I need to talk to this patient about when they're coming in for that 15 minute visit? And oftentimes it's actually not that much. Yeah, and I love it. And I think, you know, pre-internet social media is like, the human just had the doctor as the only source of information, right? And now it's like, I don't have to tell you everything because we've got all these other resources for you. Go learn when you're, because you're stressed going to the doctor, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm stressed going to the dentist. Like I just know it happens. And it's like, absorb it when you're not stressed and then come back for like the nuanced part of it. Let's talk about how women should not talk to their men. Because I think we were talking about some cringeworthy stories about like penis shaming happens, size shaming happens, ways that men have really been hurt by women, I think, maybe poorly communicating with them. Growing up as a woman, I always thought, woe is me as a woman. It is tough being female. And what I've realized over the last three years where the majority of my practice is seeing men is, oh my gosh, that struggle is real. Like real men that are walking around all over the streets, every single one of them is struggling at some point in their lives about things we as women never knew they even thought about or contemplated about. I was running two hours behind in clinic yesterday in part because I just had some patients that they were coming in for a simple you know, follow-up visit and they just unloaded for 45 minutes. And I just like sat back and I was like, uh-huh. Wow. Wow. That's, that's really tough. You know, and men want to talk. They want to talk. They just never really been given that opportunity to do that. But every single insecurity that we as women experience about ourselves, whether it's our intellect, whether it's when we look in the mirror, do we like what we see? Do we like how we look naked? You know, how does our hair look today? How does our skin look? Do I have a blemish on my face? Like men have all those same insecurities. They just don't have the luxury of being able to walk into a store like Sephora to say, I want to hide a blemish. So where do men go when they have 
acne scars? Like, where did they go to cover that up? Or where did they go when they're worried that, you know, dad had early onset hair loss and he doesn't want to lose his hair and he's 25 and he starts noticing a bald spot? Like, how does he cover that up? And there's nowhere that he can like go in and feel safe and say, I'm worried about this. Like, what do you think? Whereas you and I can go into a place like Sephora and Ulta and be like, what do you think foundation wise that I should put on my face? You know, how do I, how do I use contour? Show me. And we have no problem sitting in a chair in front of everyone and have someone do our makeup, but you don't see that for men and, and men just with on the, all these online sites there. I mean, it's, it's obvious it's billion dollar industry. Men want that information. We're just not giving it to them. And yeah, so I've learned that, that they all have the same insecurities. We talk about weight being overweight, underweight, normal weight, and eating patterns and exercise. And men care about those things as well. So it's a factor. We talk about body image in the bedroom and, and anxiety and performance that we don't really delve into. We just expect that that penis is going to work. But if he's not feeling good about his body or we as women, if we feel bloated, we don't feel sexy and it's hard for us to have an orgasm too. Then that can be the same factors for men. So we are so similar. Men and women are so similar. We have the same wants and desires. We want to feel good about ourselves. And that's been amazing for me to learn over the last three years. But women, we haven't, neither person has taught how to discuss these concerns with our partners. So men can be assholes. Women can be assholes. Oftentimes, both of us at the same time can be assholes. And there are words that have come out of my mouth in personal and professional relationships where I'm like, oh my God, like, why did I say that? You know, and it wasn't meant to be rude. It was just, I was telling it like it was or trying to communicate, but it can come off rude. And so we have to really check ourselves to say, okay, if I make a comment about, you know, my partner's penis, whether it's curved to the left, you know, it's not nice to say, like your penis has a curve or it's give it a nickname, you know, we sort of joke about that. And we use different vegetables to show the penis. And, and I have my own face masks that have penises on them. And we talk about it like it's a joke, but you know, for some people it it can be quite offensive, especially if they're very sensitive about their genital parts. And I have plenty of guys like you heard during your training, they currently perseverate over the size of their penis. And I'm trying to understand why, like, why are you so obsessed with your penis. And when you really get down to it, it's because, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, different partners that they had said, I'm only with you because your penis is great, you know? And so then when their penis isn't working anymore, they're like, am I ever going to end up with anyone? My penis isn't working. And apparently there's nothing else that's good about me, you know, or they say, you know, my partner said my penis is small, you know, she can't feel me or she's not having an orgasm. And so there's something wrong with me. Right. And a lot of the times it's not, it is about the penis, but it's also about so much more. Like, what can you do with your hands? What can you do with your mouth? What can you do with a sex tool, a vibrator? And so that's where that creativity is so important. So it's all about the penis and yet it has nothing to do with the penis. Yes, totally. Absolutely. One of my chapters of my upcoming book is like, can sex survive without the penis, Mm -hmm. right? It's because it's such an integral player, but we, we age and our bodies have illnesses and function is different than it was when we're 18. And if we don't expand our view of what our sexual repertoire is, we're really not prepared for either a postmenopausal vulvar pain and dryness or erectile dysfunction because we've kept our sex so narrow narrow. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think both like testosterone levels, penis size, penis function is so intimately tied into what it means to be masculine, what it means to be a man. And it's very threatening to have that challenged. 
Yeah. And I, I find the interesting thing too, when it comes to creativity in the bedroom is we it's so focused and narrow within the typical healthcare setting, but in the underground on the internet, it is like another world. And I haven't gone to those sites, but like in talking with other people, I feel like it's like the gaming world where like people who aren't in gaming, they just like, oh, it's video games. But like for real legit gamers, it's like another universe. And that's what I think it is in terms of like this sexual world using toys and and bondage and whatnot is like, we have to bring that into the healthcare system because our patients are engaging in those activities. They're just not telling us about them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's a way to do it, but but that world exists. We just don't learn about it in medical school. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been coming up a lot, you know, again, talking about like, what can we learn from these other cultures that we don't have experience with is like the culture of the queer culture. And then the culture of like the BDSM culture has this amazing communication, almost ritual, right? Of like communication up front is expected. Communication at the end is expected. We reviewed how it went. Trust respect. All of this stuff is like intricate in that those intimate lives. And it's like, we have a lot to learn from a lot of these other cultures to that I think would improve your traditional fare of heterosexual, where I think there's a lot of issues that would be improved by good communication. I agree. I would love to see the BDSM communication scheme within our typical sex lives. And just for a conversation to look like, what are you okay with us doing tonight? Do you think that intercourse is is in play or is that like a no-go? Right. You know, and then you put everything out there and then you have a safe word and then you play by the rules, you know, and it still allows you to be spontaneous, but you lay the groundwork down. And I think too, when we think about that discussion of sexually transmitted illnesses, that also has to enter into the conversation and no one wants to talk about it. And so that's why they're so rampant, but even just bringing that into the conversation ahead of time to be like, just wanted you to know that. I've been diagnosed with HIV. I'm currently on medication. My viral load is zero. So essentially with sexual activity, I won't be able to give you, you know, that virus, but this is the steps I think we should take to protect ourselves, you know, and then you just put it out there and we, we have to teach people how to have those conversations. It's not enough to say the conversations need to be had. We have to say, this is the type of environment where maybe it would happen. Is it at on the couch? Is it at the dinner table? Is it over coffee? How do you start the conversation? Is it, I really care about you. I respect you. I respect our relationship. I just wanted to talk about some things related to sexual activity. Huge. The the Danish sex education for teenagers includes role-playing. Like what if one partner doesn't want to use a condom? How do you role play? How do you navigate that conversation? And I'm like, whoa, that's a, it's, it's happening. It might not be happening in our culture, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. Where we're providing teenagers with the resources to be like, some of this stuff's hard. Let's role play it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Let's talk about testosterone for, you know, speaking of things that make men feel like men are, are threatening of the low testosterone. My question specifically is like, you know, I think when it's advertised, do you have symptoms of low T? It's so generic, right? Like lack of energy, lack of zest, tiredness. Like guys are like, I don't know, like, isn't everybody tired? Does that mean I have low testosterone? My question is for like the guys who might test as kind of like low normal, is it risky to start testosterone? Should they not right away? Should they do like lifestyle stuff first? Can you give us a quick thought on like low T? 
all of the above. My approach has drastically changed over the last three years. I initially, when talking to men, would say, look, when I put you on testosterone, I'm going to shut down the signaling to the testicles. You're going to become reliant on that medication. So let's, why don't you lose weight, move your body more, and then we'll recheck your levels. And while that's sound advice, and, and certainly if they do lose weight, it can improve their testosterone levels. It's really hard to do that when your testosterone levels are low. If you get home from work and you feel tired and you feel crummy and you have brain fog, it's really hard to go to the gym. And let's say you get to the gym because you have that the motivation and your partner makes you go to the gym, let's say. If you work out at the gym and you don't see your body changing, that's very frustrating. And you can't expect a person to continuously go to the gym and lift weights and do cardio without noticing any changes in their body composition to keep doing that. That's not positive reinforcement. So my practice has changed to educate them on all the different ways lifestyle changes that they can do to improve how they feel and their testosterone. It goes back to the basics of sound nutrition and moving one's body, but also to say, this is what the research shows. This is how it can help men coming in with low testosterone. And I list those things. And, and I'll talk about how it can improve bone density and anemia. And, and usually those aren't the reasons why guys come see me. And in some folks, it can improve libido and erectile function. But more and more research is coming out now that shows that treating someone with low testosterone with testosterone can improve all these metabolic syndrome parameters. So ability to lose weight and lose waist circumference and improve blood pressure and improve uh, diabetes control. So at the end of the day, the same thing with women, hormones are important. And so if we ask ourselves and we ask our patients, how might I hurt this person? Once we know the answer to that, everything else is fair game. And so that's how I decide how I'm going to treat someone who is coming in with, let's say, low normal levels. If he's 30 years old and wants to have a child in the next few years, I know if I put him on testosterone therapy, I can make him so that he can't have a child. That's how I can hurt him. So then I'm thinking in the back of my mind, well, how do I preserve his fertility? And there are different ways to do that. So I might put him on a solo medication to try to boost his own production of testosterone and that's going to keep his fertility, you know, intact. Or if I put him, if I'm thinking I'm going to put him on testosterone, I'm going to say, look, man, we need a safety mechanism here. Why don't you freeze some sperm? So if we need to, we can use that for something like intrauterine insemination. And if I end up putting this guy on testosterone, I'm definitely going to be putting him on a medication that keeps some stimulation to his testicles. So for the young guy coming in with low or low normal testosterone, I'm always thinking if this guy is interested in future fertility, I might mess that up with therapy. But if he's not, then it doesn't really matter if he's not interested in having a future child. When I think about the prostate cancer patient and the heart disease patient, a lot of that research has been debunked in terms of testosterone increasing risk for heart disease or increasing risk for cancer recurrence. In fact, more and more research is coming out to say that even men with bad prostate cancer, high risk disease, actually some of those men are being given very high doses of testosterone and it's actually helping to treat their bad prostate cancer. So, so much of what we thought even 10, 15 years ago when it comes to testosterone has really become a 180. And so in some ways it's changed in terms, it's not harmful. And in many ways, might it be protective? But I'm always with any of these therapies, I'm always asking myself, how can I hurt this patient? I come up with that answer. Everything else is fair game.
Beautiful. So say you've got like a 45-year-old, low testosterone, and he says, Doc, am I going to be on this for the rest of my life? Am I looking at like four decades of testosterone? Or like, can you ever come off of it? What are the thoughts there? Yeah, anyone can come off testosterone. And so what I tell patients, especially when they're coming with that low normal, where I can say we could go either way here, is I say, we'll put you on a trial for three to six months. And I'm going to see you back in three months. And we're going to check your estrogen level and your hematocrit, because those are some of the downstream effects of putting someone on testosterone. So I know if they come back in three months and they're not feeling better and their estrogen level is really high or really low, guys are really, some guys are really sensitive to their estrogen levels. I mean, estrogen is incredibly important in men, like testosterone is very important in women. So it may be that I just haven't optimized their levels yet because some of that testosterone will get converted to estrogen. So I'm checking those levels to know if I have them on a good regimen, but I'll ask them in three months, how you doing? How do you feel? In what ways do you feel like your symptoms have changed? And a lot of the guys will, some guys will high five me. They've never been happier. They feel awesome. So I know they want to continue therapy. And some guys say it hasn't helped as much as I thought, but I have some improved energy. And I'll say, well, do you think it's worth continuing? And most guys notice some benefit in some aspect of their lives that they want to continue. But every single time they see them, if I make any adjustments, let's say I see them in three months or a year later, I'll ask them, how are you doing on therapy? And I'm not getting any questionnaires. There's nothing. I don't need any objective data. I just sit back in my chair and I say, what's going on? How are you doing? Any problems, any side effects? How do you feel? You know, how do you feel? We're asking men how they feel. Do you feel like you're being productive? Are you making gains in the gym? Like those are questions I ask these guys. And and I leave it up to them in terms of whether or not they want to continue therapy or or stop therapy. And then if they want to stop therapy, I'll offer them a weaning protocol because let's say they don't notice any benefit after three or six months of being on testosterone. If I just have them stop doing the testosterone all of a sudden at once, they might feel very poor because it's going to take time for their body to reboot again. And so I'll offer them a weaning protocol that puts them on some like aromatase inhibitor or something like a Rimidex, and I'll put them on HCG to directly stimulate the testicles to produce. And sometimes I'll also put them on Clomid as well. So all the similar medications that we actually use in women when it comes to fertility and hormones, I use the same medications in men. Oftentimes they're used off-label, but they're all the same medications. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming. I already have a list of what we need to talk about next time. I hope that you'll, <laughs> I hope that you'll join us again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.